0: All right, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer real quick, now that we've figured out how to do this again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you give us your holy word, the word of truth which sets us free. Give us hearts that are always ready to trust in your promises, ears that are always ready to listen, and a love for the things that you've commanded. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Welcome back, good to have all of you, good to see some new faces, this is great, this is, I'm, you know, when we schedule the start of a Bible study, I'm always a little bit nervous that nobody's going to come, but this is great when you all, you all show up. Uh, do you, does anybody need a copy of the handout for today? Okay, as you have gathered, I suspect, we're jumping right back in the middle of things, Mark chapter 10, so it's been a while, um, and we need to figure out where we've been. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you, first of all, this animated film. There were two, there were two animated films made by this organization, the Bible Project. Two of them about Mark. They have two different styles that they really employ. One is the the big sort of cartoonish style that gives you on on an eight and a half or eleven by seventeen piece of paper, you can have the entire outline of the book. That one's really useful. We probably see that one again. Um, before the end of the class, before, the end of, before we're done with Mark. This is another style that they've done. It's a little bit more graphically oriented. Um, this is, uh, for, for the Gospel of Mark, I really prefer this one. I think it does a great job of telling the story and helping you to know what to expect. So I'm going to show this to you, but before we do that, do you have any questions? Or what are your questions? It's been a long summer. It's been a long summer. Yeah, I mean, it's been four months, right? since we did this? It's a long time. Good. Ready? Here we go. Okay. I think one of the things that I love most about Mark is its relative simplicity, right? Once you have that structure in view, the first half is about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. The second half is about what it means for him to be the Messiah. Once you have that in view, all of the stories that take place, because there's a lot, I mean, a ton of tiny episodes along the way that really, uh, they sort of take a different character when you understand how they fit into the bigger picture. Um, As you saw, Mark chapter 10 fits into this pivotal section in the middle um, where Jesus says three times to the disciples, the Son of Man must be handed over and killed and on the third day rise again. Couldn't be any clearer than that, right? He he says this to them three times, and all along the way, they—I mean—in in today's story about the rich young man, the disciples once again show that they that they need to be uh, formed; they need to be taught still what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Because they say they think that they understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, and then Jesus has said to this poor, uh, this rich young man, he says, um, "Sell all that you have and give to the poor." He walks away sad, and then Jesus explains. He says, "You know." It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples say, well, what are, this is impossible for anybody then. What's going on here? I mean, even at this point, as he's explaining death and resurrection to them in the clearest terms possible, they don't get it, which should be a lesson to us about um, our own understanding, right? It's usually precisely at those points when we think we understand, especially what what uh, the gospel is or what the kingdom of God is, especially at those points that we um, should step back and say, maybe I haven't seen the whole picture yet. Um, Okay, the other thing I like about Mark, and I'll just commend this to you, is it's so short. It's really short. It's very digestible. If you, uh, I bet maybe you could read it in, in an hour from beginning to end. One of the things about um, doing that, and maybe even doing it, if you do it a couple times over a relatively short span of time, like say, let's say you read it from beginning, beginning to end once a week for a month, you would have this, uh, you would be absorbed in it. You'd be, you would know the story really well, and um, that that's really helpful, especially in a year like this where in church we're reading the Gospel of Mark, the stories take on a different character. Um, anyway, I commend that to you. I suggest you try it. Just try it once, at least once. And you don't have to, the, the thing is, we often mistake reading the Bible. We say, I need to be sort of having revelations along the way. Every, every sentence I read must be super meaningful. Nah, no. Just read it. Just, just keep going. Just plow ahead. You know, the old, like, they have all these tactics for, um, in, you know, ensuring that you stay concentrated while you're reading. Move your finger along the page, right? Just force yourself to keep going, get from beginning to end, and then do it again, um, I can't say how valuable it is. Um, I didn't mean to give so much of an introduction. What are your questions? Do you have any questions about that video? Any questions about where we are or what we're doing? Yes, Krista. Krista, I
1: thought for the disciples, it's really unbelievable that Jesus said,
0: and so they ever rise again. Yeah. So I mean, And that's all you can really conclude is that they just didn't believe him right? What are the, which I think is an interesting exercise. Think about this. What are the ways they can get around these, cl- these clear, plain words? I'm going to die and rise on the third day. And they say to themselves, he's not really going to die and rise on the third day. How do, you, how do you manage that? What are the mental gymnastics you have to do? Marilyn? Well,
1: I would think you would just say, well, he's using a story or an illustration.
0: It's kind of figurative.
1: So, because nobody does that.
0: That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. That's that's likely. We do that all the time with Jesus. He says things that are um, that bother us, and we say, "Well, he must not really mean it." Of course, if it bothers us so much, this is a, an important rule. If it bothers you, it bothers you because it's clear, right? Because there's no ambiguity about it. If it was unclear, it wouldn't bother you so much. All right. So let your uncomfortable, your, your discomfort with Jesus' words be an indication of how much he means them, how serious, how clear they are, okay? Is there, are there any other ways you can think of getting around I'm going to die and rise on the third day? He said,
1: they, if they want to believe that he is actually the, the one who was meant to come, that wouldn't be how they would think of him coming. Yeah, I mean, he should be gallant on the horse and that's right. They were earthly, they were
0: deciding, thinking he was going to be an earthly type of that's right. king, not a Yeah, yeah. So they've got two competing narratives in their head, and they just choose to go with their narrative, right? Yeah. Aaron.
1: Or they
0: could be thinking, that's plan right now, but Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Which is precisely what happened in chapter 8, when... Jesus says he's going to go to Jerusalem, Peter, and Peter says, "No, I'm not. This is I'm not going to let this happen to you, right? I've got a better plan than you." Again, it, when the moment when you think you've got a better plan than Jesus, just stop, just qu- quit, right? Drop it right there. Yeah, uh, Carol, did you you had something you were going to say? I thought you raised your hand. Okay. <laughs> that's how I often feel, too, in this group. This is good. Let's do this. Let's dive right into Mark chapter 10. Now, um, I have Alec McGowan for you. Do you want to hear him read? Okay. That's what I thought. Let's do... Um, we're just going to do the first chunk here, The first, basically the first page. So, verses 17 through 37 of chapter 10. Ready? Let's... Yes. Alec... McGowan, G-O-W-A-N, M-C-G-O-W-A-N, or E-N. Yeah, yeah. A- another way, I mean, I've, talked, I've said this before, another way to go through the entire Gospel of Mark, just listen to him do it from beginning to end. Um, okay, so let's just start with your observations. Tell me what you notice, either about how he delivers it or just about the content of the story. Cheryl. Well, you
1: know, you can't hardly blame the guy that was doing all this good stuff because he wasn't terrible.
0: Pharisees all the stuff that works for you. Yeah, so that now, I'll, I'll press that even further. Not just was it the stuff of the Pharisees, but it's actually what God says, right? He says this, uh, you go back to Leviticus, he says, here are my commands, do these, and you will live by them, right? Um, and, and Jesus, you know, plays into that profoundly, right? Gives them this list of commandments. These are the things you must do in order to inherit life. So, so we, I mean, we should, right off the bat, be careful about accusing the rich young man of, being, of asking the wrong question. It's actually the right question. And there's even a bit of um, greater sincerity than we might expect, because what does he ask? He doesn't say, what must I do to earn eternal life, right? What must I do to deserve eternal life? He asks, what must I do to inherit it? What, so if he already understands eternal life to be an inheritance, what does that say he ne- thinks about it? It's given to him. It's given to him. Yeah, right. Um, an inheritance is never something that you earn. What do you have to do? Let's say um, you are going to inherit some portion of an estate. What do you have to do in order to receive that? What do you have to do? Yeah. You have to be alive, right? Um, maybe Maybe you have to run down to... You have to find a lawyer to make sure they read the will properly, right? Or you have to have something notarized, or you have to um, demonstrate that you are the person you say you are, right? So there are some things you might have to do, and this is kind of what he has in mind, right? I know that the inheritance is for me because I'm a child of Abraham, okay? So what do I have to do to lock it in? Which is, not, again, not a bad question. Not a bad question. Holly. Right. Is he looking for praise, or is he, is he truly wondering if he's done all the right things? Right. That's a good question. Um, so in Mark, we don't see much of his personality except for when he walks away sorrowful, right? We don't, we don't, we, he give. how does McGowan, in his tone, tell us about what he thinks the rich young man's motives are? Affirmation, right? I, I feel pretty good about how things are going, I just need somebody, another person, to add another level. of. I mean, and and boy, we do this all the time. Have you, I mean, you could see this in yourself, right? When you've, either, so, either you feel really good about something, and you just want somebody else to say, yeah, you did a great job, or you feel like you did something wrong, and you want somebody to say, it really wasn't so bad. I mean, this is our lives from beginning to end. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But this is also, you know, culturally, we're in the Midwest, this is kind of in our blood as Midwesterners to, to seek approval from other people. But it's also a human thing. Um, so he g- gives us a sense that um, he's looking for affirmation. Go ahead.
1: I think it's um, the idea that it's, you know, harder to go through the eye of a needle than for a new, rich man to I think it's not just rich man, it's any man.
0: That's right. You know,
1: and I think that, like, the impossibility of the task of actually following God's, you know, very explicit, like, do not do these things, these things, it's impossible for us. He's saying basically nobody can do it. That's right. Only God can do it, so God's the one who has to do the saving, and, you know, it's like acknowledging Just all of you, you know, great, keep on doing good things, but you're all sinners.
0: That's right, yeah. You know,
1: putting it out there.
0: And the disciples even pick up on that because they don't say, well, then how can any rich man be saved? They say, how can anyone be saved, right? How can anyone be saved? Um, And part of the reason is because they are looking at you know worldly measures of success. How do you know whether you've done well? Well, usually you can check a you can check a list of boxes, right? You can check some boxes and know whether you've done well. And if you think of the commandments that way, uh, the same way we measure worldly success, then either you're going to become self righteous or despair. In no case are you going to say, um, "I've you know I've uh, this is." Uh, in no case are you going to understand what's actually going on with God's law, Martha. Kind
1: of on a similar line. So what must?
0: Be- yeah.
1: So I do nothing; it's a gift, mm-hmm. you know, from God. But yet He gets it to do either. Right. So it's yes. You know, it's a gift. There's nothing we can do. God gives it to us. We receive the gift. We say thank you. Either, yes, please. We hand you. Right. But now it would almost imply.
0: So this tells us this tells us a lot about how Jesus works. Because what so so. Given you, your linear approach to this, which is, um, I'm with you, what would you expect Jesus to say to him? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It would be,
1: the gift has been given, receive it.
0: Yeah. You don't have to do anything. It's already yours, period. Okay. So why does, why, does that, why does that not suffice in this case? Why is that not a good approach? Kathy? In, in
1: order to receive an inheritance, somebody has to die.
0: There's that, yes.
1: If he, um, and and it says Jesus loved him, just Jesus looked at him and loved him. So I think he loved his heart to his desire to please God and be and receive his inheritance. But there's that thing, and that's him. It's his own self is in the way. He has to die. The the man has to die to his...
0: Yes. He has to... His idol idol has to die, right? Um,
1: Yeah. You know, it's like he could look at all of us and say, this is yours. And you think you're good, but...
0: Right. And the trouble with sin is never just that... Never. I mean, this sounds trivializing. It's never just that you say you hurt somebody else or you take something that doesn't belong to you. Those are things are oh, horrible in their own right. The trouble with sin is that it displaces God. So if you trust in money, take your pick. Money is usually the most obvious culprit, but there are plenty of other things. Your own. Uh, uh, Success, your own achievement, your aptitude, your health, your youth. You put trust in any of these things, they displace God. You can only serve one master. And as Luther says so helpfully in the large catechism, your God is whatever you expect good things from. Um, and so he expects, in his case, good things from a lot of things, right? So principally from his, his ability to keep God's law. But Jesus, seeing his heart, knows in this case, he's actually trusting in his riches, right? So it's really not a matter of whether he understands what an inheritance is. It's a matter of the fact that his heart is out of place. And in order to get at hearts, you can't take a linear approach. You you should say things clearly, as Jesus does, right? But notice how when Jesus says, keep the commandments, it doesn't work because... The guy thinks that he's kept the commandments. And it's a really interesting thing. What do you notice about the commandments Jesus gives to the guy? What do you notice about them? He doesn't mention idolatry, he doesn't mention idolatry right? He starts with commandment number five, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then 4. Which is fascinating, right? Um, he doesn't mention 1, 2, or 3. Probably because, as John says in 1 John, this really potent passage in 1 John, He says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we're not even ready to talk about your love of God. Let's just talk, let's just pause for a second and think whether you've actually loved the people around you, the people who have immediate needs, the people right next to you. That's what's so helpful. Take a look at this painting on the back of your sheet there. I'll pull it up on the screen, too. This is a a great painting precisely for that reason. It points out at least one interpretation of of what's really behind the scenes with this guy. So what do you notice about this painting? What do you observe?
1: Got some street people in the background. Yeah.
0: There are people with needs right there, right before this guy's eyes. And he doesn't see them doesn't have compassion on them. He is, you know, dressed beautifully and luxuriously. And his concern is about himself, his own righteousness before God, and he has failed to love those people around him in need. Jody. Jesus made
1: quite a human gesture on, look
0: at this guy. Yeah, it's, you can't miss it in the painting, right? Like, you know, yeah. you can't miss my gesture. Right. It's a, it's a very common, you know. Right. So, one of the things that Jesus can do that we can't is to, he can see straight into this guy's heart and knows really what's at stake, right? That's the hard work we have as Christians. Um, you shouldn't, so, I mean, when you, when you think about your relationships with other people, don't think that you're ever going to be able to diagnose. <laughs> In the same way Jesus says, I know what your, I know what your problem is. Um, it doesn't work that way. But um, you do, as you have relationships with, relationships with people, you do gain some wisdom. And you start to be able to see in a way that lets, permits you to help. And one of the important things to remember is that the presenting symptoms are usually not really what's at stake. Aaron, did you? Oh. Well, I was looking at the picture. And I don't, you know, there's a guy who's dressed
1: in black. Or
0: yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I
1: was looking at the contrast between the guy black and the you know, right
0: white, red color. And I, I didn't know if that guy black was somebody who
1: was in need or if, if like, you can see his hand and look at that. It looks like he's always helping.
0: Yeah. Like, oh. Right. But he's, like, in the shadows. Nobody sees him screaming. Yeah. And he really He does look pretty sad. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe That's right. He's not doing all the things
1: that you
0: can check off the list and get praised for. Right. It's, I mean, so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in a context very similar to this, right? Somebody comes and asks him this question, and the follow-up question is, well, who is my neighbor, right? So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and you could easily picture that right here, right? This guy in the background is the least, the last one you'd expect, somebody who's probably in perhaps in similar need, or, I mean, why do you wear all black? Maybe maybe there's some great deal of suffering or some loss, some mourning. Um, in any case, uh, that person is, is the one who's fulfilling God's law. Now, it's really tempting at this point to say, okay, now we know what the rich young man must do in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, if He needs to sell all the, that he has and give to the poor and then his problem will be solved, right? Then, then he will have accomplished what he needs to accomplish, right? Um, and that's another reason why the story doesn't, it isn't linear because what's the result? What's the result of Jesus' words to him? Yeah. Sorrow. Um, which is um, a painful thing to observe. If you say something to somebody and... And their reaction is only to walk away sorrowful. Um, that's, a terrible, that's a terrible thing to have to do. Um, you have to be pretty confident that you're saying the right thing. Um, but you can also be confident, Jesus is confident in, in this, right? That uh, there is such a thing as godly grief. Because what's he sorry about? He's, he's sorry be- because he sees the conflict now. It's clear to him the trouble with clarity is that it forces crises, right? It wouldn't, again, it wouldn't be so bothersome if it wasn't so clear. Um, And that, I mean, this is, uh, it's a a tough point. It's a critical point in this man's life. Holly. Uh, Yeah. Right. And, yeah, that's right. So think, and if you think about exactly what an idol is, it's something that you love, something that you expect good things from. So if that's taken away from you, your life is over, right? Um, that's really that's really painful, um, and this is what Jesus means when he says, "Take up your cross and follow me." I mean, this is well. This is the cruciform life of of a Christian. Um, there's this great relationship between all of these words. It's cruciform. This is a crucial moment. All of these things have to do with the cross. It's a turning point. It's a crucible through which this guy has to go, um, in which the uh, you know the the fluff, the chaff, is burned away. So that hopefully what's left, and, you know, we hope, um, we can only hope confident in Jesus' goodness. Jesus isn't, doesn't hope with any uncertainty. He knows he's going to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. But this man goes through this crucible um, necessarily so that on the other side, it's the only way that he can come out with a, with a clean heart, a heart that trusts in God. What other observations do you have? Yeah, Krista. Um, I, I, I
1: only, it's a little detective, but I read a, a fiction and that he later on followed Jesus. Yeah, right. I think when you, when you met only one time Jesus, it will not leave you. Yeah. Um,
0: yes. You would think so. You would think so, right? I, I think Although there is something about, I mean, I, I, so I think about it in both ways. So we can imagine a scenario, a future in which this guy comes back to Jesus, where it's had the effect that we would all hope for him, right? Um, well, who knows? Um, on the other hand, you see how Jesus is with the disciples for so long, and yet even Judas turns away, right? Jesus spoke so clearly to him, presented him with, his, with the way of life and the way of death, and he chose the way of death. Um, it is, I mean, it is in, in some sense a, a bit of a warning for all of us to take, seriously the gift that's been given to us because this man had one encounter with Jesus that we know of, right? Um, it might be all you get, right? That's a, and that's a tough reality, um, but it is, it is uh, the way that Jesus works, the way that God works. It's in God's infinite, unknowable wisdom that he comes to us um, at, you know, at certain points in our lives and not you know, across the entire span of our lives. Aaron. I'll give you a corresponding answer. <laughs> Not very well. Yeah.
1: That's huge for us, people being pleased yeah. so, But I'm not going to turn around and be like, I'm getting rid of that. I'm going to just make everybody know. <laughs> <laughs> you take it. You know.
0: good, good idea. Like, there's, there's these things that feel so complicated because I, they're in my life, and, and it's, it's all interior. You know, it's yeah. all like how I see those things. Right. So. Right, so yeah no that 's good. so uh, the question is what do you do well there's two things One question is what do you do when you see when you observe that you have an idol? What do you do any Any thoughts about that I mean so it's easy it 's easier if you have like a little household god and you 're actually burning <laughs> incense before it you can throw it out. Um, you could do that okay, so yeah, go ahead. one
1: of the easiest things is not necessarily that you get rid of that idol, but it becomes no longer the idol if you place something above it. Right. So maybe it's just about something that can surpass it. Like I really like that like Martin Luther, your God is the one you
0: you expect good things from. Like right. it's not
1: about like changing that. It's about changing your focus on it.
0: Yeah, right. And that's that can be really practical actually. So um in those moments when you see yourself feeling the need for affirmation from other people, you can you can form the habit, the discipline of first praying, right? Thanking God that he looks at you graciously and that he loves you, right? Um, and what that does is it, it's precisely what you described, it's shifting your priorities. So there is a very real sense in that in the order in which we do things just d- demonstrates our priorities, right? So if the if you say to yourself, just take a really kind of um, a crass example, you say to yourself, I'm going to pray after I've taken a shower in the morning, right? I'm going, to I'm going to get up and go take a shower and brush my teeth, and then I'll say the Lord's Prayer, right? What does that say about your priorities, right? <laughs> Cleanliness is, is more important to you, which is a good thing. Hygiene is good. But um, it is, it's next to godliness, right? Yeah. Second to godliness, right? Um, but, that, but one of the reasons... One, so this gets to the second point, is that often it is not as complex as we, we make it. The complexity comes from our... Um, our attempts to obscure what Jesus gives us to do, right? Um, and so that's, in some ways, in order to do that, you have to, you have to pause and back up and slow down and um, think simply about things. Um, but most important is the posture of a Christian is always repentance. So when we observe our idols, we don't say to ourselves, when I smash this idol, I will have then, inher- give, you know, done what I need to do in order to inherit the kingdom of God, right? You can't ever say that, which is, you know, Martha's point. This is not what the the the, the young man in selling all that he has and gives to, giving to the poor, that's not what makes him eligible to inherit the kingdom of God, right? Um, what makes him eligible is being open to receiving it, which can only happen if he's reflected on, learned from his idols, the idols that he's had, and, and said, I, I see that I need... To get rid of these. These things must go. And that that alone, saying these things must go, that's the, the seed of faith, right? That's repentance. Um, that's contrition. So, I mean, again, it's startling to hear uh, that he went away sorrowful because sorrow is a good thing in this case. It's a gift. It's the first part of repentance. The next part is believing that God has forgiven your sins, right? Contrition. And faith. Sorrow over your sins, but never just sorrow, but believing that Jesus has forgiven your sins. Um, that's the stuff of the Christian life. Beth. I thought, I'm sorry, I thought you had your hand. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, you should just stop and you should thank God that you know the motivations, right? That he's shown you. Yeah. That's right. So, knowing, seeing your idols for what they are, whether or not you can get rid of them on your own, because you can't. But seeing them for what they are, that is the best gift. The alternative is complacency, right? The alternative is bowing down at an altar and not realizing that you're doing it, right? Um, So, when you see your idols, um, you should rejoice, when you see them for what they are, you should thank God. Um, and, you know, then, get, then you get to work and you, you, ask him to, you ask Jesus to help you out along the way. Um, now, of course, you always have to remember that when you ask Jesus to smash your idols for you, it's going to hurt because you love them, right? If, you, if it doesn't hurt, As I say to my kids when they're practicing piano, if it's not hard, you're not doing it right. It should be hard. Otherwise, you're just practicing the easy stuff, the stuff that you are already good at. You've got to practice the hard stuff. So you have to expect this. You've got to be fully prepared. Again, Jesus gives us this plain, clear-as-day warning, pick up your cross and follow me, right? A cross is not just something that you wear around your neck and it has no impact on your life. It's something on which you are crucified. That is... uh, painful, but you see him smiling, because as I think about this, this is, I mean, this is the great joy, coming to terms with this and realizing that um, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is his glory, and it is our glory too, and that when these things happen to you, when you see your idols, and when you um, face them head on, and you pray that Jesus will destroy them, and he does, and it hurts, that's how you know that you're loved by God. That's how you know that his His Holy Spirit has come to you and is working in your heart. Um, that's how you know he's creating in you a clean heart. Um, so you should rejoice in those moments. This is why, this is why again, Paul can say uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And James can say, um, count, count it all as, as joy when you suffer many things, right? Something that doesn't make any sense. It's completely senseless. Rejoice when you're suffering, right? Um, but you can. You actually get to do that because you see. You can see the bigger picture. Yes, Leah. It's a constant
1: reminder that even when you're doing maybe exactly what you should be doing, what God is telling you to do, Jesus is doing exactly what God is sending the earth to doing. They're still suffering with it. Yeah. And so I think there's this um, maybe this idol too of thinking, well, if I do everything right, things won't hurt so much. Right. Or I won't be so conflicted and. Um, it's like, it's just not going to be that way. Even when you are doing the right thing, it still might be hurt. I mean, so many times when you are doing the right thing, you know, you tell your kid, you took that, you need to go back into the story. Yeah. You're doing the right thing, but it doesn't feel good. Right. Um, so feeling good doesn't necessarily equate to being good.
0: That's exactly right. Yes. And there is this liberty, this sort of incomparable liberty, in knowing that you doing right or wrong doesn't change how Jesus feels about you. But that you want to do the right thing, and it 's good for its own sake, regardless of how it feels, so taking you know returning the item you stole um, is is good simply because Jesus tells you to do it um, and it doesn 't have to uh, feel good in fact, if it feels bad, whatever, because Jesus told you to do it, and that 's a good thing um, that that kind of confidence in doing the things that Jesus has given us to do um, that 's another gift, and this it, it's really important that we not try to make our lives more complicated or make the things that we're given to do more complicated than they are. They are, in fact, very simple. I mean, this is why the Ten Commandments are so helpful, because they lay these clear lines of responsibility, right? If you're a parent, love your children, right? Teach them the faith. Teach them in the way they should go. If you're a child, very simple. Obey your parents, right? If you have things, use them for other people's good, right? Right? Love with them. If you are, uh, you know, if you're a boss, pay your workers. This is not complicated, right? That's, I, actually, that's an interesting thing. I found this to be really helpful. When we get to explaining the commandments to the kids, I usually say, okay, so seventh commandment, don't steal. Eighth commandment, don't lie. Ninth and tenth commandments, I don't, how do you describe what coveting is? Don't want to steal. Don't. But here, Jesus explains it for us. Seven, eight, not, so do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, right? So this is the difference between the Seventh Commandment and the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, right? The Ninth and Tenth Commandments is about, like, if you're a boss and you want to underpay your workers, don't do that, okay? You're not, like, actually taking, you're not stealing something from them right away, but you're not giving them what, what their due is. It's all very simple. It becomes, it becomes complex because, again, we don't like how, how plain, how clear it is. That's what hurts us. Okay, what else? Okay, let's move forward just a little bit. Think about, go to the bottom of the page here. Uh, verses 28, just, just observe this. Um, and he, Alec McGowan did a great job of bringing this out, right? Jesus says to Peter, Peter says, look, we've left everything and followed you. So, ergo, you know, what we, we were... All, <laughs> all great, and the inheritance is ours. And Jesus says, first of all, this promise, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold in this time, right? That's a temporal promise, a promise for right now, not just for eternity, which is something we often don't take seriously. We think that Jesus, only we, we, when, when we're confronted with suffering on all sides, we think that there are no temporal blessings no blessings for this time. We just have to wait for eternity. No, Jesus says a hundredfold right now with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So what in order to see the blessings that Jesus gives you now, you have to have eyes that are um, oriented through the cross, through the suffering that he gives you. And one of the ways, one of the clearest ways that he blesses you with, all, with a hundredfold is in the church, right? Is in the church because your family is here in church, right? So if you, if you become alienated from your family on account of the gospel, or if you lose all your friends on account of the gospel, you receive a hundredfold back because you're in the church. Holly, did you have a question? Way to go. Um, okay. We've got a few more minutes here. Notice this, that Jesus um, says to the disciples, um, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Verse 27. This is another important thing to as as you're as you're thinking about um, how to understand your responsibilities, what's God pleasing, what you should do. Don't ever make the mistake of just taking something that's impossible and making it difficult. Okay? So Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, this is really, really difficult for this to happen. He says, he, he holds the line, it's impossible. It's impossible. Um, and that's, I mean, wh- wh- among the different kinds of mental gymnastics we go through, we encounter things that Jesus has asked us to do. When we say, we say uh, we console ourselves by saying, this is really, really difficult. And I'll try really hard, but it's really difficult. And maybe I'll, maybe someday I'll get really good at it. No, you've got to say up front, it's impossible. Okay, it's impossible for you to be saved. It's impossible, um, and that that has everything to do with again the first commandment. Understanding that um, God has rescued you from an Im- not just a difficult situation. You're not just like stuck in the mud, but you've drowned and died in the mud. Okay, it's impossible, um, and that's the the first commandment is directly related to. The the very notion of faith. Because if you want really to expect all good things from God, you have to go back all the way to the beginning. Not just that he's going to give you your clothing and shoes and house and home and your family and protect you, but he's going to give you your life and your breath. This moment, right now, and from the beginning of your life. Um, Because apart from him, you're toast you got nothing. So hang on to that. Think about that. Um, and, you know, the, the lesson for us, the really practical lesson for us is, uh, first of all, to examine, sort of examine our lives. This is, again, the, the ongoing usefulness of the Ten Commandments. It's not just something that we learn um, as a sort of a, a vestige of the Old Testament, right? The Ten Commandments are God's gift to you to understand what your idols are. It's how you discover your idols. And then when you, when you discover them, Thank God that you can see them and ask him to get rid of them and then gear up because it's going to hurt. But it'll be good. That wasn't very encouraging, I know. But, but I mean it to be encouraging. <laughs> Aaron. Yeah, right. The
1: whole
0: process is good. Yeah. What you... What you uh, I mean,
1: something I can't
0: do. Right. Yeah. The line between justification and sanctification, between, you know, Jesus raising you from the dead and then you living that life that he's given you, that line is, you know, theoretically, theologically super clear. Right? You can, t- you can tell the difference between all those things. And you know, as Paul says, that the life I now live... It's Jesus living in me, right you can say that, but because you're still a sinful human being and the orientation of sinful human beings is always towards self- justification always always always, especially I mean there's something about uh, modernity and being as I mean we've inherited a lot of existentialism from from our from from the past from the last two centuries and we don't always observe it. But we think a lot about ourselves. We observe ourselves a lot. We're introspective um, as Americans and as 21st century people. Um, and that lends itself to a, a kind of a unique kind of legalism. Um, you know, in the past, it wasn't, it wasn't so introspective. Like in the medieval church, it was, give me some things to do, okay, and then I'll be satisfied. Um, for us, it often feels like we need to sort out our inner life in order to be thoroughly sanctified Um, so you know simply making that observation is really i think is is helpful Um, and also you know recognizing confessing over and over again that that's really the sin that's at that's at the root of everything it's my desire to do god's work for him right this is what i'm finally what I, i wish you would just let me do it for him um, and when you when you confess that, which is what you confess, every time you come to church, especially at a place like St. John, where the divine service is oriented in such a way that you don't, f- hopefully, don't feel like you're contributing anything, right? You're not bringing anything. You don't have to do anything in the divine service. This is about God serving you. Um, in the same way, you can orient your life in that way, too, right? Um, this is where the disciplines of Christian living are really helpful. So you begin your day with making the sign of the cross and saying the Lord's Prayer. You're orienting your life towards receiving what God has given you. Um, Yeah. We should go. Come back next week for more of chapter 10. I think Pastor Nelson will keep going with chapter 10. Um, Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.